Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Unzipped has to be streamlined more, and it has to be for the few invited and really has to work on the aspirational dimension. If you can do that, I think a lot of entrepreneurs would be very keen on being part of it. And the more you say no to an entrepreneur, the more they want to get in because that's a concept of entrepreneurs. They never accept a no. More than I accept a yes. In fact, it's more fun to have a no than a yes. So I'll build on that. So I think it has some merits, but I think it needs more work. That's great insight. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Martin Lindstrom. Martin, you've got all these best-selling books and you advise all these giant companies and Time Magazine names you one of the 100 most influential people. I'm interested in how you introduce yourself, though. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm 51 years old. I'm still figuring out what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> well, tell people tell people a little bit more about what you've been doing lately. Well, it's, lately what I've been doing is to understand the uh, the psychology of women driving in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> I mean, it sounds crazy, but the projects we are involved with, typically things which are changing the view of the world, uh, whether that is branding a royal family or a new country, it is to help major plastic issues around the world, or in this case to... Uh, help women be recognized as drivers in Saudi Arabia. As you may know, Saudi Arabia is the last country in the world where women were not allowed to drive until a couple of years ago. And what we noticed were that as the permission was given, very few people were signing up for it. So I was asked by the government to understand why. So I dressed up as a woman and I was a woman for a week to find out what harassments were going on between men and women, what intimidation was happening. And I basically lived the life through the eyes of a woman, in inverted commas, I don't need to tell you, to understand the psychology. And after that, of course, I spent tremendous amount of time interviewing women across the region. And we built a strategy in Saudi in order to ensure that the uptake of driver license were increasing. And it happened. It became extraordinarily successful. But it only happened because I felt like 
their situation when they're driving on the roads. You know, I don't know how I haven't come across your stuff before, but the more I'm diving into it, the more I like it. So it, automatically I'm hearing some of the stuff that I have heard from you about empathy and and seeing problems from the outside in instead of from the inside out, like is natural for us. My, I guess my first, well, let's back up for a minute. You're in Switzerland these days. Am I right that you grew up in Denmark? That's right. Yeah, I grew up in Denmark. I did a contract with a what I thought was an, a, a British person in Montreal in Canada. And uh, by coincidence, I realized that, that guy, he was living in Sydney uh, in Australia. So I moved to Australia after signing a napkin and lived there for a while. Then I moved to Tokyo, then I moved to Paris, then to London, then to Melbourne, and then to Switzerland. So yeah, I lived a little bit around the world. <laughs> okay. But your LinkedIn says New York City, by the way. So uh, that's, that, that's because my social team is there and I don't think they know how to fix it. <laughs> so I, I've got some proud Danish blood. The first, the first Larsen to come over from Norway in the 1850s, stopped by Whoa. Denmark and picked up a wife on his way over. So it was, it was a profitable <laughs> trip. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll tell you one thing that once you are Dane, you remember the Vikings comes from that region, right? It stays with you somehow. Well, let's talk about, let's start with Thinkers 50 for a minute. You know, we, we've had some some of your colleagues who, who've been named on the Thinkers 50, but for listeners who aren't familiar with it, can you tell us about what the Thinkers 50 is? Thinkers 50 was a list which was created by two journalists nearly nearly 15 years ago, I believe, in order to give credibility to thinkers and business thinkers and strategists around the world. And it probably today is perceived as being the Oscars of business thinkers and strategists worldwide. Um, it's a list which is awarded every second year in various categories, and then you have a master list. So I've been so you know, lucky to be on the list for five years. I don't see myself as particularly clever. I was kicked out of school nearly. But uh, what it does is it creates a, a pretty powerful community among us, so we kind of help each other. And it also enables us to see things from a different point of view, which is what I believe creativity is all about, to combine two ordinary things in a new way. So that's really the list. And beside that, it's extremely good to use it for bragging materials whenever you have a self-confidence issue for a moment or two, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So the, the book, The Ministry of Common Sense, is this seventh bestseller for you or eighth? It's the eighth. Yeah. I've, I wrote my first book back in 1994. It's actually a fun story. I mean, a lot of my background have to do with the Lego. When I was a kid, I built my own Legoland in the backyard of my mom and dad's garden. And then I opened the doors to this amazing theme park I spent a year producing and only two people showed up, my mom and my dad, which really, in hindsight, was the lowest point of my career, I think. So I went to a local print office and I persuaded them to sponsor an ad. Not sure how I persuaded them, but I did. So I had 131 visitors showing up in my theme park two days later. Only problem was that visitor number 130 and visitor number 131 were the lawyers from Lego suing me. They said <laughs> it was their brand. I said, no, it's my boxes. I bought it myself. And here comes the twist to the story. The owner of Lego actually hears about the story and jumps into his car and drive to my parents' house. I'm Danish. Lego is from Denmark. 
And so I literally have the owner of Lego knocking on the front door of my mom and dad's house, which is very similar to Willy Wonka, the chocolate factory feeling at that stage. And he says to me, I heard about this story and we do a deal that he employs me. So I become the youngest kids ever in history employed at Lego at the age of 12. And that really begins my story with this uh, strange love story, love affair with Lego. I worked there for some time, later on start up my own advertising agency when I was I think 13 or 14, sell it to BBDO. I had a Lego, of course, as a client. And then during my BBDO days, I... How old were you when you sold it? 18, yeah. For people who don't know, BBDO is one of the biggest (laughs) ad agencies in the world. So that's, yeah. that's, that's a cool answer. <laughs> it was fun. And then uh, in 1994, which, how old are you? Yes. I am 40. You are 40, yeah. So literally, that was just about when the net was uh, was created, right? A little bit later in 1994. That was the year where World Wide Web appeared. And what happened was that Lego approached me again and they said to me, hey, we would like to have you strategize on the Lego strategy. So I thought a lot about it for about half a year, and I'm a guy of simplicity. I think I've stolen a quote from Winston Churchill, which once said, I wanted to write a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. So I wrote a strategy for Lego. It was only four words, and it said, quit the plastic, go digital. And then I was fired. So in the meantime, in 1994, I wrote a book called Brand Building on the Internet, which was actually the first book in the world about how to build brands online. And Lego came back to me the year after and we basically put Lego on online and developed the whole strategy and whatever followed later on. So you asking me about my books, um, that was my first book in 1994. And then uh, there's been seven books following that. Well, you know, what's funny is I'm on Audible right now and like I've got biology in my wish list, brand washed here. So it's on the radar and I'm just sad I haven't gotten to them earlier. So let's talk about this one, though, the Ministry of Common Sense. Well, Ministry of Common Sense is really a book which happened after I got so extraordinarily frustrated about the lack of common sense in, in our lives. I mean, the other day, for example, yes, I was jumping on a plane and I took a seat and the announcement said something like, ladies and gentlemen, welcome on board on this plane. I regret to inform you that all cabin service has been completely suspended on the entire flight. And by the way, the laboratories in the very front of the plane are exclusively reserved for the cabin crew only. So here we were, 131 visitors or whatever it was, and we sort of had to walk down the aisles, ending up in a TSA-like lane. And and here we could breathe in the freshly brewed smell of toilet mixed up with a nice faint uh, aroma of COVID-19. Uh, so I, I took my seat on this plane, of course, and, and I'm not sure, Jess, have you been flying recently? No. No, so you haven't noticed they have this brand new entertainment system on planes now. It's really cool. It's called a COVID tracing and contact tracing form. It's sort of a evolution of the landing form you typically have when you land in other countries. One of these forms which you fill out, which is absolutely useless. No one is looking at it, you, except when you have a fight with the guy with customs. But anyway, so they have a contact tracing form now, brand new system. And the first question on the contact tracing form was, have you been in close proximity with anyone over the last 12 hours? <laughs> uh, so I just looked at the girl on my right, got her phone number straight away and put it on the, of course, the contact tracing form. And and then the second question was even worse. I mean, you don't have pens anymore, right? No one used pens. So this bright, clever guy on row one 
he asked the person if he could borrow a pen. And this pen is sort of walking down the entire plane, ending up with me. Where the second question, by the way, was, have you touched anything, anything anyone has touched over the last 12 hours? And I kind of ticked yes with that pen. <laughs> so what I'm saying is common sense is seeing things as they are and you know, doing things as they ought to be done. And I think the issue is that that's gone. So a lot of my clients across the world, whether that is Maersk, which is the largest shipping company in the world, or Lego, or whatever it is, know increasingly they have been uh, haunted by uh, bureaucracy, red tape, all that stuff. Uh, I call that an emotional stretch jacket or an immune system, which uh, is killing creativity. It's killing the nimbleness, the entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, you're very much into an entrepreneurial spirit. You know, as soon as the company is more than 1,000 employees, it starts to be slow. It starts to be all about legal and compliance and rules and regulations. So I realized very quickly that when we created uh, transformation ideas for organizations, you know, one of the things I do a lot is to help companies survive when they've stuck in the way of seeing the world. But time after time, we will see that the lack of common sense would be an issue. And then we landed up uh, at one of the largest banks in the world, Standard Chartered as a European bank. And, and there was this lady inside. She was so frustrated about working there. And at two o'clock in the morning doing a workshop, she says to me, Martin, we have to start up a ministry. I said, what do you mean? We have to start up a ministry of common sense. There's no common sense here. So we did that. We opened up a real ministry of common sense and it began to vacuum clean one stupidity out of the bank at a time. And right now it's up to 2,000. And it's been extraordinary success. And that really became a tidal wave of how to start up ministries and build in common sense because it's killing the motivation. It's making employees frustrated. I mean, 80% of everyone employed today want to move on to another job. They don't like where they are. And of course, as a customer, it drives you insane when you have to look to the same or listen to the same greatest hit compilation of elevator music mixed up with a track saying this call is for quality purposes and we're recording it right now. I mean, do we really need to listen to more to that crap? So that's where I had to write a book about it, I guess. <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm on I'm on martinlindstrom.com and I want to talk about a few of these case studies. So let, let's start with Lowe's. Th this idea of doubling turnover, one store at a time, at the same time as becoming the most innovative supermarket in the US. Can you tell people about this? Well, I was sitting in a car with the owner of uh, Lowe's and his name is Brian, a wonderful guy. And he said to me, Martin, uh, can you help us to fix the brand? Just fix the logo somehow. Uh, I did that, by the way, six years later. Uh, but we first changed the whole concept and the strategy. Here's the issue. Supermarkets are stocked in, in sort of another century, I think, of the past these guys were squeezed left, right, and center, Walmart on one side, Publix on the other side, Amazon breathing down their neck, and they had no point of differentiation. So we did something unusual. We first took all the store managers into homes of consumers across the country. They'd never done it before. I remember I was with a, a, a store manager who had worked in a store for 26 years. He was shivering as he went into this home because now I, I'm typically in my work spending time in consumer homes. Over the years, I've spent time in more than 3,000 consumer homes across 70 countries living with people to understand their point of view because that helps us to understand how to build a or rebuild a brand. So there we are figuring out that this supermarket chain stands for absolutely nothing. 
In fact, people just didn't like it. In fact, they preferred not to go in there. That's what they told us. But there's one thing standing out, just one thing, the chickens, all those chickens. They were perhaps at best 5% better than anyone else, but it was 5%. So we went back and we said, why don't we own the concept of chickens? So we did something unusual. Remember, yes, I talked about how creativity is to combine two ordinary things in a new way. Well, we decided to take a chicken and a chandelier and combine them. And that becomes, a everyone knows that, a chicken chandelier, of course, pretty common. So we created a chicken chandelier, a real one, a cool one, costing nearly $100,000. And we hanged it in each of the supermarkets. And then whenever there was fresh chickens coming out of the oven, it would fire off and we'll start the song. You remember the song, right? And all the staff would congregate underneath the chicken chandelier, start to dance with the guests in the store. And within half a year, Lowe's had millions of people watching this crazy dance. And then we started to change the supermarket, one department, one store at a time. And today it's the fastest growing supermarket chain in the US and just under Amazon in terms of performance. That's incredible. When you break that story down into the principles we should all copy, obviously it's the chicken dance. But besides, <laughs> besides that, when you, when you think about pulling that down into individual principles that business owners listening to the show today could maybe have a fresh look at their business from, what would you break down the principles as? I think the number one thing is very simple. You need to stand for something. And let me just try a little game with you. I want you to tell me what brand a word is standing for. So I'm going to give you a word and then tell me what brand you're thinking about. If I say, let's say search. Google. Right. Let's go into the car industry and I'll say safety. Volvo. So how did Volvo get to that point? Well, it happened in 1959. An engineer from the Swedish Air Force was employed at Volvo and he invented the three-point seat belt. Then he invented the airbag in the side of the car, the 24-7 light, and the, I still hate him for that, the seat belt alarm. They slowly came to own one word, safety. Uh, you need to own one word. If you own one word, it will align your message. Remember, every touch point the consumer comes in contact with or the entire span of your brand's life define your brand. And one of the things we did with Lowe's was to say, what is we want to own? We wanted to own community. We learned from consumer insight as we moved into consumers' homes, two things. The first thing we learned was the communities were dying. This is eight years ago. People are not going to a church anymore. They're not going to the playgrounds. They're not going to the sports clubs. The community centers has closed down. People are sitting at home alone. They didn't have a relationship with their neighbors anymore. So we said, why don't we create a place where people can breathe? So we created... A, a purpose, which is bringing people around the community table. The second observation we made was pretty profound. We learned that people have two ages. We have the physical age, I'm 51. And then we have what are called my twin age, my inner age. I'm probably 16. And what we learned was that everyone has that. You probably have a younger age inside. How old are you? 40? I'm 40. Yeah. And inside? Yeah, I don't know. The like the the inner like skateboard snowboard kid of yeah. those mid teens, you know, like yeah. Yeah. And so this I, I think is I still feel like I think I still feel like college age. You and, do, which yeah. is bad because I hire like college interns and then I realize like they think I'm old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I think we're the same age and they think I'm old. Yeah, exactly. And then when you sit in the meetings where you have people which are your age or slightly older, you feel like you're young, right? 
And what's fascinating is, and this is very important for everyone who is listening to have in mind, you should never communicate to people's physical aids. You always communicate to people's twin aids. I mean, the other day I got a, a brochure from an insurance company I have, and it said on the front, are you ready for retirement? And there was a photo of, no offense, but a 75-year-old, very elegant man on his yacht, gray hair. You could see he's been earning money and he's been being successful and he also looked very old. And he said, are you ready for retirement? And I could so not relate to that photo, even though I probably have to relate to it, right? Because I see myself as 16 years of age. So what we learned with Lowe's was to understand the audience, to feel what they were feeling. That comes back to the concept of empathy, putting yourself in the shoes of another person and feel what they're feeling. Do you remember what we talked about Saudi Arabia? That's what we did in North Carolina. And as we did that, we then were able to not just find out what we wanted to stand for, i.e. the community, we also were able to build up a store where we actually were appealing to people who were much younger. To go to a supermarket is extraordinarily boring. We wanted to build inspiration into it. We wanted to build in a smile. So how did we do that? Well, we created shopping carts where there was a special cup holder for beer. So men could go up to a local brewery inside the store, craft their own beer, and go around with a headset and listen to music while they were shopping, right? We created another concept, which is up and running very soon again, it just closed down for COVID-19, which is that we have live music DJs just next to the yogurt and the milk aisles. And then you can hang around there at seven o'clock in the night. And then there will be a person coming up to you saying, hey, what do you, what do you want to have for dinner tonight? Are you going to have healthy or what is, well, I want to have something healthy. Okay, here's a recipe. Do you want that? It looks pretty cool. And then the person will shop it for you, give you a recipe, buy everything for you while you get your beer. That is where we're appealing to multiple ages. So the second key learning is, remember the first one is to focus on one thing. The second thing is to use consumer insight to understand what we call the universal truth, i.e. I have a twin age. And second, the community was missing. And then we build up a community around it. Then point three, we created a point of differentiation. We took something where we were slightly different, 5%, remember, the chickens? And we made a big deal out of it. We owned it, just like Volvo owns the seatbelt safety, just like Google owns search. Remember, Google is not the best search engine on, in the world. We think it is. What's the first thing you'll do if you had to find out who it is? You will type it into Google saying, who's the best search engine? What do you think Jesse's answer is going to be? You can just give it a go, right? <laughs> you get what I mean? But we think that's the case because they constantly have find new ways of telling the message and drawing the conclusion that they're the best. So that's point number three. I think that point number four for me is to have in mind that you want to work with two scripts, not one. Remember, branding is perception. It's to add a value to something, a perceived value to something which creates an emotional connection between you and whatever it is you're selling. And I think there's no better person at doing that than Alfred Hitchcock. When he directed his movies, he always had two manuscripts. He had the blue script and he had the green script. The blue script was uh, how the props and the lights and the stage, how it had to be set up. The green script was how you should feel. He would map down how he would feel minute by minute throughout the entire movie. He would feel scared. The next minute you feel empathy. Then you'll feel anxiety. Minute by minute, you map out exactly how you'd feel as you were watching his movies. Blue script and a green script. Most companies, whether that's retail, business, consumer brands, 
will think about the, the blue script, but they'll forget about the green script. The green script is somewhat the customer journey. It's how you feel throughout the journey and it's how the brand has a voice throughout that whole brand journey. And if you map that down in a smart way, you're not just creating a loyalty to that physical product, but you're also creating a loyalty to, to the brand. And I think the last thing I would have in mind here is probably that there is no such thing, by the way, as B2B and B2C. A lot of people think that it's, it's different, it's not. I think the best way for me to illustrate that was when I was in, in Zambia with a fellow Canadian uh, citizen to you, Malcolm Gladwell. We're sitting at the savannah looking out at the, the safari and there was these animals running around and there was this guy wearing a hat. And Malcolm, he asked me, have you noticed how people are wearing hats here but they don't wear hats in the rest of the world? It was Malcolm Gladwell asking a question. You don't just answer it, right? So I thought about it again for a year, I think. Came up with a very simple conclusion that the answer happened in 1961 because that was the year where Jeff Kennedy was inaugurated. And during the inauguration, he didn't wear a hat. And then you may say, well, no big deal. He doesn't wear a hat. But as it was the first time where we were merging private and, and work, in, I guess in the old days, you would go to work, put on your hat, and then you'll be in a work mode and you go home and you take it off, right? And then later on, Steve Jobs removed the tie. And then later on again, he introduced an office in everyone's pocket called the smartphone. And today we all sit behind the screen and have a pipeline of bureaucracy going straight into our bedrooms. So there's no difference between private and work anymore. There's no difference between private, B2B, and B2C. So I call that H2H, human to human. So I think that the future is all about human to human. And we need to understand that when you build a brand, you are appealing to the individual. You're not appealing to a corporation if that's a business to business category you kind of believe you're working in. And with those, I think, three or four points, you probably have a very nice platform for you to work with. And that's for sure what we did with those. That's fascinating. You know, I, I feel like one of the big benefits of this show is that I get to talk to such interesting people who have thought deeply about concepts and then I get to run my startup ideas past them and see how see where see where my blind spots are that I need to think harder about. So it's funny as you're telling all this story, I, I keep thinking about what you talked about earlier and the, the idea of creativity and combining things in new ways. And I'd love to tell you I'd love to tell you my idea and then see where, where you think that I need to think harder. Is that okay? Yeah, it is. If it's okay that I'm honest. Okay. So the first, the, the kind of the combination is, you know, boring, reliable income from commercial real estate investing and looking at what like Red Bull has done or, or Bloomberg has done where they built a, a real media company, not just like a content arm, like a genuine creates advertising dollars media company. And, and probably the closer comparison is one out here in Utah um, called VidAngel, where they, they'll like edit it's like a software that will edit Netflix or Amazon or something so you can take the swears out and watch watch shows with your kids, stuff like this, okay? So they have all these subscribers to their media business and then they sell them investments though. They sell them in crowd equity crowdfunding investments into their own TV shows. Like, you know, it's like, there's an Amazon show, there's a Netflix show, right? So VidAngel has their own shows. Their first one's called The Chosen. And it's like, it raised the most money of any equity crowdfunding for any TV show to date kind of thing. So my thought is make a legitimate media company, try to earn trust with, with entrepreneurs. The idea being if, you know, hopefully they want to use some of their uh, retirement income to buy boring, reliable commercial real estate income from us. And, and the thought that I have of like, okay, well, what's the media company going to be about or what's going to be different? Why aren't they just at the Wall Street Journal or Inc. Magazine, you know, for entrepreneurs? 
And I spent the last decade really involved in the training and consulting industry. And I thought that industry has some pretty high fees. If we could essentially train, not the what to do, but train like myelination, you know, like deliberate practice, Malcolm Gladwell's outliers, right? 10,000 hour stuff. If we could almost create like an academy for entrepreneurs, like here's how to be rich. Here's what to do with your money. Like you don't have to be embarrassed when you're out golfing with your friends that they're using acronyms that you don't know what they mean. Our media company will teach you that stuff in a very cost-effective way, more like masterminds and community events kind of thing. And basically almost kind of create like an academy community for, for entrepreneurs on how to handle their money, um, in, but just drastically undercut what their other options are, expensive lawyers, expensive financial planners, stuff like that, and have the revenue driver be when they, when they buy investments from us. Well, I have two comments to it. The fact that it took you two and a half minutes to explain is a tricky issue, right? Because I do think that powerful ideas should be able to be told in, in 20 seconds, perhaps. So that's the first thing. Why is that important? I think it's important because if you're able to articulate the idea in one go, it's so easy for you, so much easier for you to sell it and for other people to buy into it because other people recommend it. And if they have to go through a very convoluted explanation, it's tricky. So that's a, a score down. The score up, however, is that I do think there's a market for it. I do think it's possible to create a, a media format, a media setup as what you're talking about right now. But I do think that you have to launch it in in a very clever way. In the end of the day, we, you and I are insecure. And I think a lot of founders are deeply insecure. They're very secure in certain aspects and very insecure in others. And they're very good at, at trying to lean up against insights which can help them to become better. So who do they listen to? They listen to people which have influence. I think one of the reasons why Clubhouse became so popular so quickly beside the backstory was that Elon Musk suddenly was there. I think that if you want to kick this concept off, you need to identify some entrepreneurs which really have done very well and almost make this become a closed club for few entrepreneurs which are helping each other and let it grow that way where it's by invitation only. I think the best way of illustrating that is both the Amex uh, Black Card, Centurion Card, how that originally was launched, which were by the invitation only, or how Hendrix, the gin brand, was launched, which actually uh, in Europe was launched in five bars only, and you couldn't buy it anywhere for a year. The bartenders were just sampling it away to few invited. So I think your concept has to be streamlined more, and it has to be for the few invited and really has to work on the aspirational dimension. If you can do that, I think a lot of entrepreneurs would be very keen on being part of it. And the more you say no to an entrepreneur, the more they want to get in because that's a concept of entrepreneurs. They never accept a no. More than I accept a yes. In fact, it's more fun to have a no than a yes. So I'll build on that. So I think it has some merits, but I think it needs more work. That's great insights. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna re-listen to this interview and take some notes because <laughs> yeah. got, I, it's, it's given me some ideas all over, already. Well, let let's do another story. Let's talk about let's talk about Burger King rediscovering what made Burger King famous. I think uh, Burger King has been through as many companies have over the years a midlife crisis. They lost their shine, 
And one of the things, you know, I've been very focused on when I started to speak with the folks in Miami, where Burger King is from originally, uh, was to understand why do you go to Burger King? And through Consumer Insight, what we learned was that this is the first time you're allowed to eat with your fingers, right? As a child, where you're together with your parents. And by the way, it's the first time you feel like a king or a princess when you get this crowning, the king, Burger King crown on you. These two things actually had been forgotten by Burger King. It's just become a another restaurant opening around the corner without no soul. So a lot of our focus has been to bring back that feeling you had the first time you went to a place. And this is very important to to understand that we don't have a taste preference. You don't have a taste preference. What we do have is childhood memories. I mean, let me just ask you, do you like coffee? I actually don't drink coffee. Do you like beer? I actually don't drink beer either. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. If if you were to I love ask, root beer. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. If you ask a lot of people, they'll say no, they don't like coffee beer the first time they try it, right? Mm. And then for some reason they start to drink it later on. So why do people change their mind? Mostly they change their mind because the first time they drink coffee or beer and hate the taste is because they feel like an adult. And that adult feeling is replayed in their head as they're together with other friends and they feel part of a new tribe. And that taste become part of a new feeling. So what we know today from all sorts of studies is that we actually don't have taste preferences. It's primed into us based on emotional experiences. I'm sure you tried it. You go into a place and you have a wonderful meal there and then you start to associate the meal with that place or a smell or whatever it is. And that's what we discovered with Burger King that we actually had to work on understanding the taste profiling and optimize it to you know the emotions we had at a younger age. And so Burger King today is doing very well. I think one of the reasons why it also has been very successful is because of a creative guy in there was called Fernando was his chief marketing officer. And Fernando, he went one step further and and started to do this extraordinary provocative advertising. He also managed to do researching. For example, he did the Andy Warhol Super Bowl commercial, where he actually got hold of original footage of Andy Warhol eating a a Whopper and putting on Heinz tomato, tomato ketchup, which is really very interesting because Heinz, Kraft Heinz and Burger King is the same company today. It's owned by Warren Buffett, partly. Um, so he managed to find undiscovered communication truth and run it very provocatively against everyone else. And that's the reason why it's been so successful. So I think it's one of the crown jewels in the portfolio of 3G. But it all began with us discovering or rediscovering roots. And I think as you grow older, as a company, something happened. Let me put it into perspective. There's two young kids which were smoking weeds. They're off the heads. And they were shooting photos and posted it online. And of course, the day after, hell broke loose. And the kid, he was saying to his friend, I wish we could retract those photos. And that became the birth of Snapchat, a $50 billion company today. What he experienced was a sense of empathy. He felt the pain, right? It was pretty severe. And that made him recruit like-minded. He created a, a movement. It created a change. It created a product and a service. And then as a company grows older, uh, the lawyers moves in. The compliance becomes part of the organization. The founders are derailed, think about Google. And suddenly they start to see the world from inside out rather than outside in. And I think that's the downfall of a lot of companies. That's the reason why we called in 
where the companies have grown too much or too fast or just lost its shine, that we go back to the roots of where the company came from, rediscover that sense of empathy and infuse it back into both the employees so they become proud of it again and into the reconnection between the consumer and the company. So that's what we did with, with Burger King. You know, it's interesting. Why do you think that so few people have the focus on feelings that you have when it gets the results that you get by focusing on them? Because you can't put it on a spreadsheet. We today know for a fact that 85% of everything we do every day is subconscious. People think they're very rational. We still fall in love, right? You still press harder on the remote control when it's flat for batteries or you touch wood. All these things are defining who we are as human beings. Yet every day you sit on a Zoom call, a Teams call, you exchange spreadsheets that's defined as productivity, if you ask McKinsey. But in fact, what we're seeing is that the writing between the lines is disappearing. And that is the emotional glue. That's what's defining culture. The reason why a lot of startups are so successful is because they create a culture where you have light-minded souls which have a strong, united purpose in life. And they're willing to work a lot for it, to lift a challenge. I'm sure that you tried a lot with your ventures. It was fun, right? It was fun. It was hard. It was fun, right? That was the essence of it. But companies are losing that over time. We become compliant. We start to drink out of the Kool-Aid, which is more uh, these rules and regulations driving our mindset and restricting us from a free fall of creativity. So the issue here is that it's very difficult to put emotions into a spreadsheet. In fact, I would claim it's nearly impossible. So when you go back to the low story or any of the other stories we worked with, and there's a lot of them over the years, when we invested money in an $80,000 chicken chandelier, there was no P&L or ROI type of attachment to it. There's no way you can justify that. I'll give you another story just to give you a sense of how crazy it is. We developed a concept in the store called a cakery. And I had this idea that why don't we make every cake square? Every cake is round. Why don't we make them square? We make them square to tell everyone it has real cream in it and no artificials. It sounds like a very simple idea, right? It's not. Because there's no machine in the world which can create square cakes. And, and in fact, you can't put it on these round spinning wheels so you can sort of decorate them very quickly. You have to do it manually, cost a fortune. You can't get the, the, this bread in there. It's, it's all round. So we had to build a factory to create square bread. I mean, it certainly became pretty involving. And I had a discussion with the senior management the day before we launched it where they said to me, we don't want to do it. We don't want to have square cakes. We only want to have round cake. I said, no, we want to have square cakes because this is us standing with what we stand for. And let me just tell you a metaphor, which will give you a sense of it. If you imagine you have a square box and each of those corners, four corners, stand for something very unique. For example, some years ago, I was invited by the ruler of, of Dubai, UAE, to come to UAE to help rebrand Dubai. And as I came out there with a guy called Majid al Fatim, we went out in the desert and looked around. It was very hot. And he said to me, Martin, what do you think? What's your concept? I said, it's bloody hot out here. He said, yeah, what's, what's your idea? Let's make it cold. So we built something unusual. Think about the four corners now on this box. The first corner, the sharp corner, was a ski, ski landscape in the middle of the desert. Then we would have... Real ski lifts in the middle of the desert. That'll be the other corner. The third corner will be real ski cabins flown in from Austria in the middle of the desert. 
And the fourth corner will be real light penguins in the middle of the desert, right? So we came back to the headquarter and we started to explore the ideas and all that. I love it. And imagine now I have a pen and I'm sort of circling the pen between each of the four corners, right? And I just go around and around. And suddenly they said, oh, we're not sure we like this idea where it's, it's hot outside, it's cold inside, and these kids will get a cold. And, and by the way, what if they fall and slip in the snow and will be sued? And suddenly that corner became more and more round. And I was just removing the pen and swilling it around that square, right? It becomes round and round of corners. What if these poor penguins, they will, they, they will die. Now, we need to have robot penguins. In fact, I have a better idea. Why don't we create a computer game? Let's have fun in the snow and the desert. Imagine my pen is going around and around, and suddenly these square corners are completely round. Why don't we change it to a, a pamphlet? Let's have fun in the snow in the desert. And suddenly, of course, that square was becoming a round circle. I call that rounding the corners. And what I've learned is that we are really good at rounding the corners the bigger an organization becomes. When you're entrepreneurial, you fight for those corners. Every single corner is life or death. And, and it brings me back to that square cake in that supermarket it was not for the sake of those square corners I was fighting. It was because it was the principles of keeping that concept alive. What was the concept? The concept was that you'll go up to it as a little child. There'll be candlelights on the ceiling, sort of artificial, very big candlelights. And you could then get a sample of this new ice cream. And then when you had to stick and you wanted to throw it out, you put it into a bin. And just as you're throwing it into the bin, you will close your eyes. You will make a wish. Remember, you're six years old. And then you will open your eyes and blow out the candles and the candles will actually shut down. What he didn't know that kid was, there was a person with a remote control behind the scenes shutting it down. And people would say, wow, I have the power. And then they had to do the cake dance and then they got a square cake. And every kid got a square cake in the school and one kid had a round cake. And he went over and got a square cake as well because you can't have round cakes these days. It's out. And suddenly the whole community got square cakes and suddenly whole North Carolina got a square cake and whole South Carolina and it spread and became the fastest growing cake concept. And it all comes back to the philosophy of not rounding the corner. I love it. Man, there's a lot of temptations to, to round the corners, right? It's built into us. It's built into us. It, I mean, because we're afraid. I think that's the reason why I wrote the Ministry of Common Sense, because we are afraid of the unknown. Let me tell you a story. There was an experiment done with chickens. They were put into a cage and stocked in that cage for half a year. And one day they let out on the beautiful green grass. And the sun was shining and the birds were singing. And the chickens went straight out. And guess what? After 30 seconds, they went straight back in again. I call that the chicken cage syndrome. And I think a lot of us are suffering from that. It's the fear of the unknown. So an entrepreneur have three strengths, which you will never and should never forget. One, you're nimble. Two, you have empathy. And three, you have courage because you're not afraid. And I think coming back to your concepts, that should be some of the pillars in what you're t teaching people. But I also do think for a lot of entrepreneurs that they increasingly try to lean themselves up of P&Ls and ROIs. And coming back to your original question, you can't do it. You have to follow your instinct. And remember, an instinct is an accumulation of experiences through many years. Follow your instinct for a while. The reason why no one else has done it is because they start with the PL first, they start with the, the, the ROI first, all that stuff, those spreadsheets. But they forget about that Edison didn't sit down and develop a ROI first. Neither did Steve Jobs, neither did Tesla, whatever it is, and neither should you. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, listen, where 
I, I have only, I only have about five more hours of questions, but <laughs> unfortunately I've got another podcast starting in two and a half minutes. So we're going to have to do this again sometime. Thank you. When, where are the best places? People want to find your books. They want to find out about you. Is just coming to the, coming to the website the best or where's the best places for them to connect? Listen, just go to martinlindstrom.com or type in my name on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and you'll find me up there. Of course, if you want to buy the book, Minister of Common Sense, go to the big evil Amazon com or perhaps even better, go to your local bookstore and support the little player down there. They deserve some business. I love it. Well, thanks for making time to do this. You're welcome, Jess. It was a pleasure. Bye, everyone.